chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Now the rest of the chapter is going to go into detail how God brought the animals to Noah, two by two, every kind, according to its kind. Extra animals that are clean animals, because after the flood, after the they come off the ark, there's sacrifices, Noah builds an altar, as to the Lord, there's, it's a brave new world in the post-flood world. Once again, humanity is called to be fruitful and multiply, as is the animal kingdom. They're on the boat about a year, and there's all the details of that in chapter 7 and into chapter 8, the process of how long they're on the boat and all that, and we cover that quite extensively on Tuesday night. But I really want to focus tonight on this first verse of chapter 7. There's so much in it. It is before the flood, and it is time of the flood. It is the end of his age. It's the end of his world as he knew it. And because Jesus says, concerning his second coming, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man, where men and women are given in marriage, there's a sense of normalcy, but there's things that would reflect the last days, which the New Testament gives us a lot of detail on. They did not know until they went into the flood. And Peter talks in Second Peter about how people scoff and mock the return of the Lord because they say things just keep going on the way they keep going on. But this they willfully forget that a day with the Lord is like a thousand years is as a day with the Lord. And that God's not slack concerning his promises, but he's long-suffering, that he's not willing that any should perish. And even so, too, with the second coming of Jesus Christ on the horizon of our linear timeline for our generation or our children's children or our children or down the road even farther, Because again, when Enoch walked with God and was taken, it was still 600 years before the flood came. We're told by Jesus to always be watching and ready for his return. Who then is that faithful servant? And a lot of great men and women have lived their lives and stepped into eternity, believing they had seen the return of the Lord for them before they died, and that they would not die. They'd be part of that generation that is translated without experiencing death just as Enoch walked with God and was not, for the Lord took him, he did not die, so too we're promised in the New Testament that there'll be a generation that walks with the Lord and they don't physically die. The Lord will sound a trumpet. And what a sound that will be when that trumpet sounds. And we who are alive will be called up to be with the Lord. He'll take his church out of the world before the great tribulation period and the final judgment of the world, the wrath of the Lamb, and then he'll come back with his church and the saints of old to establish his kingdom at the end of that seven-year tribulation period, what is commonly known as the 70th week of Daniel. It's a seven-year period unfulfilled yet still to happen on this planet. And we know in Second Thessalonians that the only thing that's restraining the Antichrist and that end game described for us in the great tribulation, that time that Jesus said, unless those days were shortened for the elect's sake, all flesh would perish. The only thing that's restraining would be the Holy Spirit working through the church. We are salt, we are light, and we are restraint. We might not be many here tonight, and the body of Christ not be many on this entire planet, but Jesus said, narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few enter thereby. But however many we are, we're the salt, and we're the light, and we're to bring flavor and preservation to our world and our timeline, and we're to shine, let our light shine before men that they might glorify our Father who is in heaven. That's what we're called to do. So Noah built that ark most likely for 120 years faithfully. We know that his, as he, every day he built that ark, it was a testimony of his obedience to the Lord, and it was a testimony of the contrast, and we covered this last week, of his generation rejecting his witness. He had a witness, and as that ark continued its construction process and moved toward its completion, it was a witness that this is the way to be saved in this ark. 
God provides a way of salvation. This is the way. If someone else wanted to build a boat, thinking just in case this crazy man is going to be make sense, we'll build our own ark, we'll do it our way. That's like world religion. That's the only floating vessel. If anyone else built an ark and suddenly it rained, their boats didn't make it. It was the ark by which God saved his family and his generation and the animal kingdom and continued the human race and the experience of planet Earth as we know it to this day, of which it's a far cry from that which came off the ark or even was before the ark, but still we're here with the animal kingdom. The time has come for the judgment. It's a global flood. The text makes that clear in chapter 7. I've talked about this. You study ancient civilizations, you will find almost every ancient civilization has the belief in a dramatic flood, whether it's local or global. Almost every culture you can study has that, along with original man and men with dragons. Those three things are prevalent, which, of course, is consistent with the word of God. But it says something very interesting as Noah's time had come to go into the ark. This phrase, God says this, it's a very interesting phrase, and we see it fairly often, not fairly often, we see it in the Bible at different places in a very special way. Because I have seen. Let's think about that for a minute. God says to Noah, come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. This verse, as much as any verse in the Bible, reminds us that God sees all, knows all, is aware of all, and he does not sleep or slumber, but he's just long-suffering, not one that he should perish. He's aware of every injustice. He's aware of everything that's ever happened that's unfair. He's aware of every evil on this planet, and he sees, and he knows, and he knows faithfulness, and he knows rebellion. He knows obedience. He knows sin. He knows those who are justified, and he knows those who are self-condemned. The Lord sees David, in writing the Psalms, talked about this. The Lord looks down from heaven and looks to see if there's any that seeks after the Lord, and no, there's not one. There's none who does good, no, not one. He repeats that a couple times in those early Psalms, in the first book of the Psalms, 1 through 41. And that phrase is pulled in the New Testament by Paul the Apostle in Romans chapter 3 to affirm that we are all sinners. There's no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. The Lord looks down and he knows that we're sinners. He knows in our generation, our timeline right now, on this day that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And that Savior, that salvation is offered to us through Jesus Christ. For as the angel said to Joseph, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He's Savior. We need to be saved. All have sinned. And the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. We understand that. We can't save ourselves. We're going to be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And even as Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord in his generation, we talked about this last week again, we find grace in the eyes of the Lord when we respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit to open our hearts to Jesus Christ and receive him as Lord and Savior of our life. The Lord looks down from heaven, and I have seen, says the Lord, and he knows those who are born of his spirit, and he knows those who are not. See, our world to us is muddy. 
there's all kinds of, of ambiguity in our world, people who want to merge world religions, people who have confessions without fruit, all that kind of stuff. Were they saved? Once saved, always saved? Did they be resaved? Did they recommit? There's all these things that the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve speculate and meander about when they see people walking with the Lord and then renouncing their faith, right? And we've seen a lot of that in this generation for whatever reason. And we just, we just don't know. But know this, God sits in heaven as he said to Noah, I've seen, he sees, and he knows. David in Psalm 139 said, where can I go from your spirit? If I go to the farthest parts of the earth, you are there. If I make my bed in the grave, you are there. If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. There is nowhere that we can go that God doesn't see us. The day and the night are the same to him, he declares. It's a great reality that we will give an account for every thought, word, and action before the throne of God. Just today, I was reading where Franklin Graham was reminding America of that. Did you catch it? He's in the news because he stands for righteousness in a wicked generation, just like Noah. He was asked about these famous Christians renouncing their faith and capitulating to the culture. And he said, they'll give an account. They'll give an account for every word they say. They'll stand before the throne and they'll give an account. And it's true. Jesus said, for every idle word, we'll give an account. And there's nothing hidden from him to whom we must give an account. And he will reveal not just what we said and what we did, but the thoughts and the intents of our heart. See, you might do something good with the wrong motive. You might do something bad with the good motive. Rahab lies about the spies. That's lying. That's breaking with the Ten Commandments. But her motive was good. And it saved the spies, and she's in the genealogy for Jesus. And she's commended for her faith in Hebrews 11. And there's not a lot of people in Hebrews 11, by the way. It's a tough hall of fame to get into. God looks at the heart. God sees. I have seen that you are righteous in your generation. The Lord looks down from heaven, and he knows everything. And it's a sobering thought for us, and it should be a sobering thought for us. Paul's passion in ministry, that drive to take the public beatings, to take the public ridicule, the Apostle Paul was so driven by knowing, therefore, we must all stand before the Lord and give an account that we become all things to all men, that we would persuade them to come to Christ. And we endure all things for the love of Christ. The Lord sees and the Lord knows. It's good to be reminded of that because if you just look at news, media, or fake news, or whatever you want to call it. It's all manipulated with a perspective that people want us to be moved by. There's nothing new under the sun. That's been going on since the dawn of creation. Cain presented the news a certain way in his Canaan world. There's nothing new under the sun. People in power want to filter what information you get and how they present it, how you receive it, and how you respond to it. But if you only listen to the elitists, the people with all the money and all the wealth and all the control and all the power, the globalists, and if you only listen to the people who think they're everything, when in fact all glory of man is as the grass of the field that grows, it withers and it fades away, but the word of the Lord abides forever. If you only listen to those people, you would think the world's one way. But that's not the real world. It's like a Hollywood set. Because all things are naked and bare before him to whom we must give an account. 
And that's the real world that we need to live in, the world of eternity while we're walking through time, space, and matter. That's the real world we need to live in. That's the reality. It's like when Elisha was surrounded by the Syrian army, and his, his, his psyche was like, oh my goodness, we're surrounded. And he said, there's more of us than them. And then he prayed that his servant's eyes would be open to see how the innumerable multitude of the Lord was surrounding them. That it, the Lord had far more going on in the spiritual realm, unseen, contrary to that which was seen, the Syrian army. It's important to have that perspective. The Lord sees and he knows, and that's meant to be a point of comfort to the followers of Christ. For we look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. That's what we're told. And we have to filter our time, space, and matter experience to the reality of eternity and being reminded by this text that the Lord sees. I have seen, and he sees you. And when you do the right things, he sees it. When you do the wrong things, he's convicting you to fix it and correct it. When you think the right things, he's blessing you. When you think the wrong things, he's convicting you. He sees. See, the Holy Spirit's not just helping us to do the right actions. He's helping us to have the right thoughts. That we would build the equity of purity. That we'd build the equity of credibility through persecutions and sufferings. And we'd build the greatest equity of them all, forgiveness. On a recent podcast, my wife was listening to John Corson from Applegate. And he was talking about all the money spent on psychology and all the psychological problems that humanity has, and even those in the church. And he said, I know I'm going to offend a lot of people, but I'm going to tell you what I think about counseling yet again. So you can write your letters. You don't have to write your letters. You can do whatever you want to do. But know this. If you receive Christ's forgiveness, and you show Christ's forgiveness, you will be just fine in the human experience. The Lord sees, and he's working on us through our faith in him for all eternity. And he's working a good work in you. He's working a good work in me. And we can't change yesterday, but we have today. The Lord sees. Look what he says, coming to the ark. Oh, how sweet that must have sounded. It's hard for us to picture a planet where everyone's going to perish. But he says, coming to the ark. You might as well say in the New Testament equivalent for the church, hey, when you hear the trumpet sound, you're in. Listen for the trumpet. Come in with the trumpet. So that trumpet sounds, we're called to be with the Lord. It's only going to happen once. Let's think this through. I always love, by the way, I always love brass. I love horns, saxophone, trumpet, trombone. I, I love horns. Now, the Jewish armies and tribes move with different sounds from their horns. There's battle cries of the horn, different things. Listen, this planet is, well, the believers on this planet are going to hear a trumpet. They're, they're going to hear a sound. It's only going to happen once. Just like the flood was only going to happen once. It only happened once. Noah had no means by which to measure what that flood was going to look like. But by faith, he built the ark for the saving of his household. And we have no, apart from the type of Enoch, we have no idea what it's going to be like to be alive. And then a, a sound happens that's an eternal sound. It's outside our dimension. It is outside this dimension. And that sound, and that dimension is always over this dimension, and it supersedes it, and that, that sound's going to happen, and it's just like 
depth opening and the, the rain beginning. But that trumpet pulls us out before the wrath of the Lamb comes upon the planet, Revelation chapter 6. The wrath of the Lamb is coming. Who can stand before him? And they hid themselves in the rocks, Revelation 6. But as 1 Thessalonians 5 says, we're not appointed to wrath, but to salvation through our faith in Jesus Christ, for we're children who walk in the light, not in darkness. Come into the ark. That ark is an interesting thing because really it is so symbolic of salvation. It was the ark of deliverance. It certainly symbolizes Christ in a lot of ways. Our deliverer is the way of escape. It was the only way of escape. What if his neighbor said, we want to go on a different boat? We're going, hey, you know, can I get some floaties, you know, for my kids? What, you know, like all these different things. Like, we just don't like, we just don't like that your ark's the only ark. Well, there's a way that seems right to men, but the end thereby is death. But Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. There's one way. I, don't you love that God just one way? It's frees to confusion. It's, it's childlike faith. There's one way. The person of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Our faith is in Jesus, in a person, not religion. And when they stepped on that ark, it was so symbolic of being invited to the deliverance that the Lord has. Noah built that ark day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. He cast his lot with that ark. He invested his time and energy in that ark. It was moved by faith. It was an act of obedience and reflected righteousness based upon his obedience to the Lord. We're told he was perfect in his generation. Not perfect, sinless, but the, the best you could be. And he certainly, as we saw last week, is a contrast to his generation that was rejecting the government of God. He submitted himself in his own heart to the government of God. And every day he built that ark, he, he cast another lot toward the kingdom. And then when it was time to be saved, the very thing he built in agreement and obedience to God was the very thing that delivered him. And let me tell you, when you face the grave, that life you've built through faith in the Lord will be your confidence on the day of the Lord. Not your works. Not works of your flesh that could save you, but the works of the faith that confirm you. Now, the thief was forgiven on the cross, and Jesus promised him paradise that day. And that's a beautiful story. But how much better to live a full life with the hammer building what God's called you to build and have a lifetime of obedience and faithfulness and trust in the Lord precede you. And then when it's time to step into eternity, that very ark you built is the testimony of your faith and obedience to the Lord as you step into eternity. Our confidence is in Jesus Christ, who's our Savior, to come and receive us and take us through the valley of the shadow of death. But nonetheless, like... As you sow, you reap. And as a woman sows, shall shall she reap. And as a man sows, shall shall he reap. And the life of faith and obedience and the ark that he built became the very thing by which his deliverance came. It's fascinating to me. And it brings up this great point. When God says, come on to the ark, he's inviting him to enter into that which he prepared himself for all those years with the life he lived by faith. That ark, he built it And it was this finished project, and it belonged to the Lord. And the Lord said, I've seen you in your generation. Come on in. Sowing and reaping. He built it by faith and obedience, and that which he built was the very thing that that carried him through. Think how much his faith grew in the Lord as he was building that ark. As he measured things out by the cubit, as he built the third story, as it was all coming together, 
And the Lord's like, well done, good and faithful servant. Come into the ark. Now, he, of course, is in a timeline and came out on a timeline. So there's limits to the, you know, what we're talking about here. But the principle is still in place there. It's still there for us. I'm going to share this again. I shared this Tuesday night because it's that impactful to me. But at the pastor's conference recently for Calvary Chapel, Mike McIntosh, many of you know who Pastor Mike is from Horizon down there in San Diego, Pastor Chuck's first employee. Romaine, Pastor Mike McIntosh, and Don McCord, the first three employees of Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, the Calvary Chapel movement. And to see two of them at the conference last month was wonderful. But in a form of questions, some young pastors asked him, what's your retirement plan? Mike McIntosh. And he said, we lost everything. We went to San Diego with $50, me and my wife. After God saved our marriage, we were remarried. They had been divorced, and she forgave them. They were remarried. And with Chuck's blessing, they went to San Diego with $50. And they started Horizon Christian Fellowship. At the zenith of their ministry, he said they had 9,000 people tithing to the church. Then they had all these things happen where a lot of people left. And eventually they came on financial hard times where he could not receive a salary anymore. And he had to give up any benefits that he had. He was broke. Pastor Mike McIntosh retired as a senior pastor of Horizon Christian Fellowship. Broke. 40, 50 years of ministry. Broke. By man's standards. He poured out in everybody. And what he said has happened very interesting in recent years is that they poured out for all those years into people, never thinking like what they could get from people, but what they could give to people. When Melissa Hanning Camp was passing an eternity, Jeremy Camp's first wife, he taught three services that morning and showed up at that hospital right before she stepped into eternity to minister to her parents, Jer- Jeremy, and the Bible college students that were gathered there in prayer. How did he do that? But he poured out and he poured out and he poured out. And the point that he said is that in the measure, good measure pressed down, overflowing, and that the measure they gave for 40-plus years of ministry is the measure they got back. And in recent years, their financial assistance has come from people giving back to them who they poured their lives into for all those decades. And he said, so my answer to your question about retirement plan is this. We started with 50, and we're probably going to end with 50. We started in faith, giving of ourselves to the Lord and to his people, and we're going to end our journey giving of ourselves to the Lord and to his people. Enter into the ark. What you built is that which blesses you. Enter into the ark. Good measure pressed down. And that's the word of the Lord that God gave me for this year. Do not grow weary in doing good, for we will reap in due season. And do not be deceived. God's not mocked. As we sow, we reap. So as we're sowing to the Spirit, we're reaping the things of life. And it serves us well for this life, and more importantly, the life to come. The Lord sees all things, and he says to Noah, come into the ark. We also see where he says, you and your, all your household. This is beautiful. We're all, of course, encouraged and inspired by this. You and your household. It's an inheritance. We read in Proverbs, a righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Our first thoughts in the human fleshly sense is estates and trusts and deeds and all those kind of things that you deal with when you get older and all these things that can go on with things like that. But the inheritance really is a legacy of faith because we're told in the Psalms that 
one generation shall proclaim your praises to another generation. And the greatest inheritance we give is of our faith. See, when we do baptisms, we always want the dads to be involved as the spiritual leaders in the household to be involved in the baptisms. So whenever I do baptisms of kids and the dads are doing it, and sometimes the dads aren't even believers. They're like, hey, let's do this. Really? I'm like, yeah, let's, let's do this. And, you know, Methuselah being born is what caused Enoch to walk with God. And you just never know what dad when he's got to go out in the water and he's uh, there to lead their child in faith, how that's going to affect them. And we've seen it be favorable. And if nothing else, it just builds accountability in a good way before the Lord. Last week, all the baptisms were with dads. Every one of them. That's the greatest inheritance there is. When we're leaving this planet, the greatest legacy we can leave to our children and our children's children is faith in Jesus Christ and a life that reflects that. And to whatever degree our adult children want to receive it, great. To whatever degree they don't, that's their business. The grandchildren, right there. I've noticed that when you go three generations, so when you have great-grandfathers and they're with the great-grandkids, it, you know, it's, it's, they're, they're, old, they're like mid-80s usually or maybe even 90, so there's a little more commotion. And I just determine if I reach 90, and I'm not in a hurry to, but if I'm there and I'm with my great-grandchildren, I want to be spirit-filled. I want to be in the moment with the Lord. I want to be pronouncing blessings on my children's children's children. I want to be pronouncing blessings on them. When you're a grandparent, the most important thing pretty much is the grandkids, okay? When they show up, time stands still. It's like, oh, what? I was talking to uh, Mike Lucas at the beach baptism the other day on Saturday, and he'll testify to this. He's security out here. I'm talking, Mike, so how's it going at work? How's the graveyard shit? He's like, well, you know, it's not everything else. All of a sudden, Clementine shows up, my granddaughter. I'm like, well, that's great. Thank you. And I went right to Clementine and Bell, you know, Isabella, my, my daughter-in-law, and Mike's like, hey, hubba, 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 hubba. I'm like, hey, you can wait. Clementine's here, man. And even now at this point in my life, like, w- what's the vision at 58? Like, where do you go from here? Like, I know one thing. I'll, every time I see these, I'm going to pray. I'm, I live to pray for these grandkids and to pray for my kids who are over them. And I live to pray for the calling of God's the call of God on my grandkids' life. And when they see me, I want eye contact, and I want to pronounce blessings to them. Like the Levites, the Lord bless thee, the Lord keep thee, the Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee, right? That's what I want to do. I want to pronounce blessings upon them. I want the words of eternity and life spoken over them when they come in our house. I want them to see their grandfather praying with their parents when they're leaving the house. You know, sometimes it's pretty chaotic when grandkids leave the house too. Can I get a witness? A lot of times it's like, you know, it's, it's shutting down. But I'm just like, Lord, we thank you for this time. See, you and your house come on the ark. And I said this about Noah. The neighbors didn't believe. That ark went up. They did not believe. But what mattered most is his family did. His wife got on the ark. His three sons and their wives got on the ark. And that's a pretty good crusade. That's a great outreach. When you're, because they know you better than anyone else. You and your family. See, your, your wife, your husband, they know you better than anyone else if you're married. 
your roommates, if you're single, whatever, they, they know you. Living in a dorm, you definitely know each other in college, right? Yeah, you, you, it's all good, bad, ugly. It's the human experience. A rehab house. My sister lives with 20 women in a rehab house still in San Diego, two years sober. It's like, yeah, you know, it just, it is what it is, right? <laughs> yeah. But your family knows you better than anyone else. And that's what I love about Noah's, when the Lord says, I've seen, I've seen, I have seen that you walk with me and you're righteous and you've built this ark for the saving of yourself and your household. I've seen your faith. I've seen your obedience. And it's strong enough to win your wife and your children to me. You're moving with godly fear, as we're told in Hebrews 11, 7, has brought your family on the ark. They're invited too. And isn't it wonderful when you see in the Bible, like the Philippian jailer, where he gets saved, his whole family gets baptized? Like, think what kind of credibility, even as a non-believer, that man had for the integrity of his home, that when he came home and said, hey, I, I beat these guys because I was called to, I had these guys, the earthquake happened, whatever tomorrow brings, it's the middle of the night, their message is true, this Jewish Messiah, Jesus is the Savior, him and his household believed and were baptized. The integrity of our faith shines brightest in the core of our home. Whether it's through dad or mom or ideally through both. The greatest inheritance we give our kids and our kids' kids is faith seen, lived out, demonstrated in our lives. What's our passion daily? Noah moved with godly fear, built the ark for the sea of the What's that hammer building in our hand? What's it building? Kingdoms of men? What folly? The kingdom of God? Praise the Lord. What steps of faith do your kids and your kids' kids, if you have children, or even those that see you in church and your extended relatives, what steps of faith do they see in your life? Do they see you stepping up to serve as a deacon? Do they see you stepping out in faith as a pastor? Do they see you moving the whole family to Vermont, not knowing where you're going or what you're going to do, like Abraham in 11.8? That's the next one coming in Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham and Sarah went to the promised land, not knowing where they were going. That's one of my favorite verses of the Bible. You ever loaded up a rider truck and go 20, a 20-foot rider truck and go cross-country with it, saying God will provide, God will take care of us? And you have a priest them pickings in the refrigerator for a few weeks and you're looking through the one ads looking for a job. You ever done that for Jesus? You ever showed up at a kind of a funky hotel in a funky meeting room to start a church? Everyone thinks a cult. You ever done that? I have. It'll give you fiber. It'll give you depth. It'll give you character. And it will inspire your children to walk with the Lord. And even if they're not even old enough to know what's going on, it's, it's a spiritual principle. It's, it's like... It's a spiritual thing. It's a, it's a good seed sown. They might be two years old and they don't understand what you're really doing, but you're sowing a good seed, a seed of faith that's happening and it's all around them. See, every act of faith that you build in obedience to the Lord, like Noah building the ark, it, it's an impact to your family and to your children and your children's children. They may not go to the church that you go to, They have to find their own faith, like the kids that were baptized last week. I told every one of those kids, this isn't your dad's faith or your mom's faith. This is your faith. You need to find, they need to find their own traction as you did. My mom sent me to catechism. 
fifth grade McIntyre Elementary School, Charlottesville, Virginia. Once a week, we'd walk off that campus and be taught a Bible study with the Good News for Modern Man Bible by the Jesus Freaks. 1971, 72. All those gospel stories. My mom sewed that into me, but I had to find my own faith. Open ocean, 50-foot seas. Divine appointments with a flat tire and pouring rain, and God sends a Christian come from a Bible study to change my tire. Humbles me. Because I'm like a drunken fool. Some guy's like, praise the Lord, one way. I'm like, good, thanks for fixing my tire. Oh, they have to find their own faith, but you have yours, and it's the same faith in the same Savior. And so you build that ark, and you go on that ark, and then they follow you on that ark. Yeah, they'll have to find their own direction in the Ice Age. But you know how you handled yourself in the rejection of your generation is a strength for them as they be fruitful and multiply and the human race goes on through them in the Ice Age after the, after the flood. Which brings us to the final thing. It's one of my favorite words in the English language. It's generation. How I think, how I'm wired, I just see everything in generations. So see, he says, because I've seen... Is this, come on, come on the ark. You Noah built it. You, you're coming on it. You and your family, you're righteous before me. In this generation, again, that contrast we looked at last week of Noah's life and his generation versus his neighbors. But it's fascinating to me in this generation, this distinction, it's, that it's over. And this is what's been so enlightening for me, helping out my parents in their upper and mid-80s. It's so sobering. You know, you... you to just think of how they lived their life and their timeline, and then on the very back end of it. Last week, I needed to shave my dad. Like, you lose freedoms as you get older. You know, like, until you ultimately, the ultimate freedom you lose is you can't go to the bathroom on your own anymore, and then you're really, you're bedridden, and it's, it's just, like David said, I go the way of all men. Or as God said, from the dust you came, the dust shall return. Well, we don't need to fear that day. I don't think Billy Graham feared it. He went all the way to 99. I have no intention of fearing it. Elizabeth Elliot ended up with Alzheimer's and probably didn't know who she was at the end. But she sowed a good seed for all those generations, and I'm sure she was fine, and people took care of her. But shaving my dad the other last week, and my dad, you know, the colonel, Korea, Vietnam, ROTC, University of Wisconsin, Masters UVA, all those things that he did. And he needs his son to shave him. He's, he's been a good shaver, but dad, I gotta, I gotta do this. And Barbie, you know, rehab Barbie's like, dad, Joe, we gotta shave dad. We gotta change his clothes. We gotta go get him new clothes. Like, and that reality, I mean, I got pictures of my dad, like when he's in the Marines, like he's like 20, when he's a captain, lieutenant, headed for Korea, that crew cut Marine. I mean, he's a Marine's Marine talking the real deal bronze star combat korea and dad's all like this how humbling it is to have to let me shave him he can get this part but he can't really get the neck anymore dad we got to get this part of course you buy him a really good razor and really good shaving cream he's the colonel he deserves the best and barbie picked out all that we got him really good nike shoes good stuff one looking good but his generation's coming to an end He grew up with radio. He was born in 1930. 
He grew up where a nickel buys you the movie and a nickel buys you the ice cream, a dime every Saturday. He grew up listening to World War II when his dad was gone in World War II for two and a half years. But that generation's almost gone, and this generation's almost gone. See, we're just right behind them. We're just right behind them. And I was going to say, hey, 60's the new 40. No, it's not. 60's 60. 40's 40. You know, they say 50's the new 30. No, it's not. 50's 50. See, in your generation, Noah was faithful in his generation, and the critical thing is that we are faithful in ours. This is where it all comes together, is all these people that lived and conquered and lived and conquered and built, and, you know, all of them, the Rockefellers, the Vanderbilts, Napoleon, all of them, they all came and went. The glory of man is as the grass of the field. It grows, it withers, it fades away. And Ecclesiastes, Solomon said, there's a great evil I see, that you... You, you go to the way of all men, rich and poor, to the grave, and then you don't know what happens after you, and there's no way for you to know. You don't get to know. That's for your kids' kids and kids' kids' generation. We have now. And our chance for obedience and faithfulness to be like Noah and obey the Lord and do the work of the Lord is our generation now. And what if we are the last generation? What if we're the generation that will hear the trumpet sound? Or what if our children are the generation that hears the trumpet sound? Should we not be praying for him? Or what if it's our grandkids? What if every time those grandkids come over, I'm looking at Velzy, and he's almost one. His first birthday is next week. And what if he's going to hear the trumpet in 23 years into his life? What manner of grandfather should I be by the example I am and how I pray and what I do and how I care and how I act and how I don't act or react? We have our generation. And there's multiple generations here tonight. We want to be faithful in ours to the end. Keep building whatever he's called us to do. By the dimensions he's given us to, seek the Lord. Let him, ignore, let him direct our steps and make clear our path. And keep building. Because the last thing we leave with on this generation is, you know, we presume we'll get to the end of our generation, but I've watched a lot of people that were born around the same time I was, and they're gone. They didn't get a full game. I'm not even sure I got a full game. I've watched a lot of people step into eternity, and so have you that are older. So our generation, the Lord sees, and I close with this thought from Chronicles, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro over the face of the earth, looking to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. Keep doing the right things. Press on for even greater things. Build that ark for the saving of others and for the testimony of your faith.